Um, Father, I am really grateful that this study has been um, challenging. And not only for me as a Bible teacher, but um, those, those studied along with me. And, and there's just been some really great interactions, some really great dialogues, some really great questions. And, and I just have such a great sense, God, that you are using the word to, to deepen us and stretch us out. So as we continue on and we look at, at actually Matthew 24 and Revelation 2 this morning, I pray that you would really give us insight and blessing that as we study the church at Pergamum, that we would learn something about our church, ourselves, and what you're up to in the earth in this day. And I pray that you would help us to just discern your will in your way. So we, we pray, just like Revelation said, that whoever studies and reads this book, that there's a blessing. So God, we pray that that blessing would occur. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Give me words to speak it clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are now in the third church, which is Pergamum, and we're going to go through the, the meaning of the name and some of the detail. Now, I want to say at the onset, I've been giving you a lot of information every week, and I've been recapping that information every week. So if you want the recap, please go to the prior messages. So we are on YouTube. If you, you just subscribe to our channel, every message we do is on YouTube. You can also find us out on our website. You can find us on Facebook. There's even some really kind of cute clips on TikTok. Cute because I'm in them. No, I'm playing. Um, no, but we did put out a click um, and a lot of people grabbed it. You know, really it's this. We want as many people as possible to be interested in what God is saying. Amen? So when we do that, that's what we're trying to do. So as I mentioned last week, though, I told you I wanted to start out with Matthew 24 this week. So the reason I want to do this so that you all understand is I want to just give you a little bit of framework. When you're studying Revelation, Revelation is the bridging, or one of the bridges is back to Matthew 24 and 25 technically. So I'm going to do about half of the chapter of Matthew 24, and it's going to be cursory. I'm not going really deep. What I'm trying to get you to do is understand Jesus talked about this. So what he's doing with the churches is the stuff that is relevant to you and I today. What's going to happen in chapter 4 is you're going to see all of that is future, but Matthew 24 covers a little bit of the past and a little bit of the future. So I want to break that down. So we're going to do half the chapter this week with Pergamum. You're going to do the other half next week with Thyatira. So you'll get a kind of a, a glimpse of Matthew 24 and how it impacts or relates to um, the end times in, in Revelation. So... With that said, Matthew 24, verse 1 is where we're going to start. Um, and this is Jesus speaking. It says, verse 1, he says, Jesus came out from the temple and he was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple building to him. And he said to them, do, do you not see all these things? In other words, they're looking at it. He says, truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So he's speaking of the destruction of the temple. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish people or the nation of Israel, Jerusalem in particular, the temple is the thing. Like, you got to think like this. If you're Jewish and you practice an Old Testament sacrificial system, if you remove the temple, you remove God. That's how you should think about this. How can you get forgiven if there's no place to sacrifice? Which incidentally becomes pretty problematic because in A.D. 70, Nero destroys this temple. So this temple doesn't exist anymore. The Temple Mount does in Israel, and it's under Islamic control today. So you've got lots of contention, lots of battle over this. By the way, Jesus talks about it. 
He tells you this is what's going on. So the Jews are looking for the restoration of a literal temple, which, by the way, should happen in the future, but because otherwise the abomination that causes desolation can't happen. We're going to get to that in just a second. Um, but what you see here is basically you remove the temple, God is dead. That's what Jesus just, like, they understand this when they hear it. Like, how could the temple be? What's, what's he talking about? Like, is he talking about when they try to destroy it in the intertestamental? What's he talking about? Because he's talking about something that's going to happen some 35 or 40 years from then. So he continues on, verse 3, and he says, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to him privately. So you got to think like this. Like, Jesus is teaching them. They're like, hey, Jesus, like, think like this. We don't get it. How many of you guys ever felt that with Jesus? <laughs> like, you're like, wait, wait, can we have another conversation? I, I, I don't what? I, I don't get it. And they said, tell us when these things are going to happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So this is what we're studying in Revelation, and they're asking him this question. And Jesus answered, and he said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Incidentally, if Jesus tells you, see to it no one misleads you, that means there's the possibility of being misled. In other words, pay attention. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars, rumors of wars. This sound familiar, you guys? See to it that you're not what? Frightened in my version. Jesus is telling you all this so that you don't freak out. Remember I said, Jesus is not giving you the playbook so that you would lose peace. It would be so that you could walk in peace, so that you could be aware. He goes, he continues on. For those things must take place, the wars and rumors of wars, but it is not the end. Watch for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there'll be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pain. So watch, watch, watch. Let me stop and just talk to you for a second. When you look at the world, does it feel unstable today? Yes. Okay, so if, if, say if, if we are entering into the end of time, and, and I'm of the opinion we should pay attention. I'm just saying we should pay attention. I'm not saying I think it is 100%, but this is as critical as all of the stuff has ever been in my lifetime, in my 35 years of being a Bible teacher. I've never seen all these pieces and went, maybe. So you should pay attention. So you've got people being misled. It says it's only the beginning of birth pains. If you're a King James guy, it'll say the beginning of sorrows. You know what's interesting about childbirth? It's efficient. It's painful, but the baby always what? Our baby always comes. That's what he's saying. This is like childbirth. Told you it's coming, and when it comes, it's going to what? There's no stopping it. Like, Faith, you're pregnant. There's no stopping it. I'm just saying, the baby's going to come. You might be like, I don't want to go through this. And yes, so? See, so you're going to have a baby, and that's the way that's going to play. And for every mother out there that's had a baby, they'd say, yeah, when it started, there's no slowing it down. It just is going to happen. So make sure no one misleads you. By the way, this misleading, you need to think like this. Religious, religion, politics, and cultural norms are sin. See to it that no one misleads you. By the way, do we have a lot of misleading via the church today? Oh, man. I'm going to get into this in, a, in another page or two, but... My daughter is writing a paper for a philosophy of religion class. It's not Christian-based. And we're having to do a lot of research, like I'm helping her do some of her research. And, and she's doing it on the impact of the LGBT community on traditional Christianity. And she, that, that, the professor gave that as an optional topic. 
You know that if you right now go and Google what I just said, LGBTQ and the effect on the Christian community, you'll be two or three pages deep on Google before you even get a Christian person. It is so thoroughly promoted, that, that agenda, by news and politics, watch, even in the churches, that you can't find a balanced view of it. Doesn't matter where you, I challenge you, go home and do it. You will be shocked to go, man, he's not kidding. You'll find like one or two, you'll find focus on the family, like 25 or 30 hits deep. PBS, CNN, ABC, the, the Center for Equality, you'll find all sorts of other stuff. And they'll all redefine the scriptures in a way that will say this. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, that was really because the people were not hospitable. That's what God was judging them for. I'm like, uh, yeah, you've got to, like, listen, just let the, the text talk for itself. You don't need to redefine it. Oh, and, and God's judgment on homosexuality, Paul was a homophobe. That's why he wrote Romans chapter. He's just a homophobe. That's not what it means. In fact, I had one guy argue this with me. This is as ridiculous as an argument. We'll get, and I don't mean to park on the LGBTQ. All of us know somebody. Listen, they're a sinner as much as an adulterer is. No different. So if you're cheating on your wife, you're just as guilty, okay? I'm not making one worse than the other. It's just our culture has a harder time, particularly the Christian community, loving people who are stuck in this sin. It's a difficult one to love. That said, I want to encourage you to be loving and be welcoming with people. Don't just draw lines because you're not comfortable with their sin. You're called to be light and darkness. Amen. You're called to do that. But, man, so much of the Christian community is giving over to this. We're affirming it. We're agreeing with it. We're embracing it. And that's what Jesus said, like, pay attention. These pressures are going to come. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. This, by the way, ties into Revelation 6, and we'll do that when we get to Revelation 6. He says, but this is not the end. It's only the beginning. So what you're watching, listen, church, is only the beginning. beginning. It's only the beginning. So you should pay attention. Incidentally, one more thing. I say this every week. Don't measure it by America. Watch Israel. America is not the centerpiece of this dialogue. Jesus is talking about Israel. Americans, we think we're the center of every universe, don't we? God bless us. We just think we're all that in a bag of chips. But, but listen, listen. We're not the centerpiece. Israel's the centerpiece. I keep saying this. Watch Israel. Incidentally, Israel is at war right now. You should pay attention to that. And you should pay attention that Russia's getting involved and Turkey's getting involved and Iraq is getting involved. You should pay attention. Because it says that the, the countries surrounding Israel in the scriptures, we'll get that out in a few weeks, they will come against Israel. So that's why I'm saying never seen the precursor quite like this before. That's why I'm saying pay attention. Is it it? I don't know for sure. I'm not God. I don't know the future. But if you're asking me as a Bible teacher, are there enough pieces in place that I'd say pay attention? Yes, I do think you should pay attention. Verse 9, he says, then they're going to deliver you to tribulation, and they're going to kill you, and you'll be hated by the nations for my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and many will portray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, and they're going to mislead many. Because of lawlessness, anomia, the casting off of good and embracing of wickedness, that's literally what that means, is increased, most people's love will grow cold, which is a correlation to the church at Ephesus who lost their first love. In other words, people will be so unloving that they'll discard their own family members. Verse 13, it says, but the one who endures till the end, he will be what? Saved. Is he talking to the Christians or to the Jews? <laughs> It's talking to the Jews. Amen. It's talking to the Jews. So 
There's some, now, now, mind you, if you're a post-tribulationist, he's talking to the church, talking to you. If you're a pre-tribulationist, he's, he's talking to the Jews. We'll get into that more as we move forward. But I'm just saying, you've got to understand your position and where you're at. And, and I haven't even defined those for you. Some of you aren't familiar with the, the lingo, but don't worry, we'll get there. Um, and then he says this in verse 14. He says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then, then the end will come. Okay, so wait, wait, wait. How do you preach the gospel to the whole world? Oh, let's go back 100 years. How do you preach the gospel to the whole world? You had to go. You had to go. How did you do it 50 years ago? Anybody ever heard of Billy Graham? Yeah. How do you do it? So travel the world, do big evangelism. How did you start to do it about 20 years ago, 25 years ago? Now, how do you do it today? So, social, social media. So if you're wondering, can the whole world hear? Easily. Easily. Now, mind you, who's in control of those happy little algorithms everybody talks about on social media that can limit or promote, those are pieces of this puzzle. You need to think that way. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. The reality is this, that some of your posts hits lots of people and others don't. And some of it's because of the language you use. Just telling you, you should pay attention to that stuff. That said, all of this stuff is going on. The whole world will be preached to. That'll be a testimony for all nations. Then the end will come. In verse 15, he says, therefore, in other words, because that stuff's going to happen, when you see the abomination of desolation, this is how you know he's speaking to the Jews, um, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea, they should flee to the mountains. So he's talking to the people in Jerusalem, and he's speaking of the abomination of desolation. This is in the holy place. Now, what does it mean to desecrate the temple of God? Anybody ever thought about this? Like, the Bible actually speaks to this pretty extensively. There's two times, well, actually, there's more than two, but two prominent times that it's occurred in history. So there was one in the intertestamental period. How many of you guys know what that even means? That's Malachi, Matthew. There was a 400-year period in between those, the Old Testament, the New Testament, intertestamental. There was a period of time that that God wasn't um, inspiring anybody to speak Scripture, and he said he was going to do that. Matthew then comes along, and you have the, the New Testament is initiated. Well, within that period of time, the temple was desecrated. Now, now th- this was done by a Greek ruler. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, so he was a ruler, and this is what he did. He outlawed the reading of the Torah. By the way, you know that if you're a good Jewish person, you study and memorize the Torah. That's the Old Testament. He, he said, I forbid that. He outlawed Judaism. Then he goes into their temple, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies. Now, how many of you guys know that pigs are unclean for Jews? You guys understand this? So this is like, it's not only that he did a sacrifice and he's not the high priest, it's that he sacrificed a pig of all things, and then after that he erected an idol to Zeus. And how many of you guys ever heard of something called the Maccabean Revolt? Anybody, the Bible, a few Bible readers, scholars? So the Maccabeans were a group of people who were Jewish, and when this occurred, they said, enough. We're not doing this anymore. So you had this like very supernatural winning of a battle by the Maccabeans. It was a three-year battle because of this desecration of the temple. That's what's happening in this this intertestamental period. This is this abomination of desolation. It's the the degrading of the the temple mount and of the temple. And, And you have the Maccabeans, they revolt. And then they have this supernatural occurrence where the candle lights don't go out. It's called Hanukkah. Anybody ever heard of Hanukkah? 
That's a celebration of lights. That's the Maccabean revolt in God's supernatural provision to preserve the temple. This makes sense. So that happened there. It, it also happened under Nero when he destroys the temple. But can I suggest to you this? Neither one of those two occasions are what Daniel was speaking of or what Jesus is speaking of. When you're talking about the desecration or the abomination that causes desolation, if you're looking at the seven-year period of tribulation, the first three and a half years is peace. The second three and a half is actually the tribulation. In the middle, you're going to have them stand up in the Holy of Holies and say, hello, I'm God, not God. That's how you're going to know that the abomination desolation actually occurred. Now, if you're a pre-tribulation rapturist, say, hallelujah, I'm watching from heaven. That's a good thing. If you're mid, maybe you're gone when it happened. Maybe you go right after. I don't know. If you're post, put your seatbelt on. Just saying, because all three of those positions are argued strongly. When we get there, I'll explain them all to you. That'll, that's still a few weeks away. But this abomination that causes desolation, it's not something nominal or small. It's a spiritual degrading of who God is. That's what it is. It's mentioned in Daniel chapter 12. Um, and, and I'll read this for you quickly. It's, this is... Uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons and the people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since. And well, let me read this better. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, they're going to be rescued. That time of distress is regarded as the great tribulation. When will it happen? If you jump down to Daniel chapter 12, verse 9. Again, you can write notes. Go back and check it later. He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed, and they're sealed up until the end of time. He's referencing now Revelation and the great tribulation. Don't worry. We'll get into the 70 weeks of Daniel in coming weeks and explain all that to you as well. So Matthew continues on in verse 22. Hold on, let me breathe. Everybody out there? You're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. Yeah, I'm giving you some heady stuff. That's okay. It'll get touchy-feely in a little bit. But this is how you learn. Listen, can I encourage you all? Most of us don't study the Bible at this level because we just don't understand it well enough. That's not a stone throwing. It's just real. You read stuff like this, you're like, what the heck does that mean? And unless you use other people's resources, study helps, or somebody like me comes and teaches, and I probably had this stuff taught to me a dozen times before I started putting the pieces of the puzzle together. I'm talking, you know, 35 years ago. Right here at teaching, I'd be like, what the heck's he talking about? And then you find yourself in Ezekiel 38 and 39 with God going, what's he talking about? I don't, I don't, what, how come they're taking, why am I in Daniel chapter 9 now? And why am I in Daniel chapter 12 now? And why am I in Matthew 24 now? And, and what about 1 Thessalonians 5? I'm, I'm so confused. <laughs> Hang in, just put, you're, you're going to hear these things repeated and repeated and repeated, and you will learn some. Will you get the whole picture? Not unless you go home and study. I'm just telling you straight up, you won't understand this unless you go home and study. But, you will understand the nuances and the important spiritual values of it. That's my hope in communicating this with you. So some of it I know is a little over your head. Don't worry, hang in. You're still going to learn some stuff. Um, but my, my goal is to help you understand some of the nature of what's going on in the world today. Okay, so continuing on. This is back to Matthew now, 24, verse 22. And he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. So the tribulation will be so bad that if it wasn't short, nobody would survive it. He says, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. A lot of argument over elect. We'll get there in other weeks. 
And then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe them. So next time a Jehovah Witness knocks on your door and says that Jesus is hiding in his secret chambers, understand this, they're inaccurate, according to what Jesus said. He didn't, hasn't shown up. He hasn't come back yet. Same thing, the Mormons have some interesting ideas that you should discard those as well. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and they'll show you great signs and, and wonders so as to mislead you. They're trying to deceive you. If possible, they'll even deceive the elect, people who are smart in the scriptures. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if, you, if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go. Behold, he's in the inner rooms, like the Jehovah Witnesses. Don't believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Really weird statement. No one knows what it means. But basically, this is what it just said. When Jesus comes, it won't be a secret. How many of you guys ever seen lightning in the sky? And then the thunder that follows? You're pretty aware that something occurred, right? That's what he's saying. Like, it's not going to be some random secret. And then once you hit verse 29, the remaining verses are speaking now of the second coming. He says, immediately after the tribulation, that's the, the time of distress, um, those days the sun will be darkened, the moon will, give his, will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now this whole reference of the sun being darkened, how many of you guys have heard that before? Heard that? Yeah, some of you heard it. You think it's a prominent theme in Scripture or just mentioned once or twice? What do you guys think? It's prominent, actually. Watch this. It's in Isaiah 13. It's in Isaiah 24. It's in Ezekiel 32. It's in Joel chapter 2, verse 10, verse 31. It's in Joel chapter 3, 15 and following. Amos chapter 5, 20. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Zephaniah 1, 15. Matthew, like we're reading right now, 29 through 35. It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 20, when the Holy Spirit is released. It's in Revelation 6, 12 through 17. And in Revelation 8, 12. So let, let me suggest this to you. And there's something in hermeneutics says, that says, anytime there's multiple mentions of the same topic, it's what? Important. You should pay attention to it. So will this occur? Yes. If you're pre-tribulation, you're going to be watching it from heaven. If you're post, you're going to see it happen from the earth. I'm thinking we're not here, but we'll get there when we get there. So, but the remaining verses are all about this. We're going to finish chapter 24 next week. And, I, and again, I'll reference back and forth at that for detail's sake. But just for this sake, understand Jesus spoke in detail about what we're talking about in the book of Revelation and following. So you should study when you go home, Revelation 24 and 25, because they're important topics to understand the breadth of what Jesus is talking about. So now we get to Pergamos. Pergamos, the state church. Okay, so the, Pergamos is an interesting place. Um, if you do the, the history of the church, it's known as the state church. It ranges from roughly 300 A.D. to a little after 600 A.D. Um, th this is, would be kind of the inception of the Catholic church. But let's start off in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Revelation, and then I'm going to walk you through and share with you some thoughts on that. And so verse 12, it says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. So we know that 
when we go through this, and I'm going to break this down in like form, we're going to talk about the description of Christ, the, the correction or the rebuke he has, the commendation, and etc. So we're going to go through those five topics with every one of the churches. Now with Pergamos, what you're going to see is that we get a word in our culture um, that is in the root of the word Pergamos. So Pergamos is a co compound word. It's peri, which is objectionable, and, and gamos, watch, watch, let me help you guys. Okay, ever heard the word monogamy? Monogamos, one marriage. A, like a, a bad marriage is what it's saying. An objectionable marriage is what Pergamos means. So in, in typology, it would mean this. This is when the church is not married to Christ, but married to the world. That's what you're going to see in the correction and with everything that we're talking about. So it's a mixed marriage, an objectionable marriage. We get our word monogamy or polygamy. Um, those are words that, because the root word is gamos, um, this particular place had heavy Greek Hellenistic cultural influence. What does that mean? The church looked like the world. So the Greek culture was influencing the world so much so that you couldn't really tell the difference. So they were taking what were temples to, to Greek gods. They would turn them into churches, but they would still do the practices of the Greek gods within the churches. So it's a polluted church is what you're seeing. So they had a lot of Hellenistic influence. How many of you guys ever heard of the Sadducees? They embraced Hellenism. It's very political in orientation. Um, this is when the church doesn't look any different than the world. How many of you guys have seen some churches that don't look any different than the world? Well, listen, it's easier to say this about Christians, like you look at somebody's lifestyle, but when you watch churches practice things that are contrary to Scripture, whether it's co cohabitation, LGBTQ, they get really political in orientation, they get really ethnic in orientation, you know, whether it's promoting Black Lives Matter or something else like that. You know, I speak those things not because, I, like, I have opinions about all of those, but when the church gets too politically oriented, it looks like this. And you watch churches start to make decisions where, well, why can't a man be married to a man? It's a, it's a covenant. Why is that wrong? It, no, do the Google search. I told you you're going to read pages of it. I'm not, I'm not playing with you when I say this. That is the prominent cultural influence, and it's now affecting the church. They're doing it through politics, and they're doing it through religion. That's what you're seeing. That's Pergamos. So it, this is literally the immoral marriage to the world. That's the title of the sermon, an immoral marriage. This is when the church looks like that. So Zeus is said to have been born in Pergamos, so Greek god Zeus. Um, there was actually an altar to Zeus within Pergamos, um, it's also known for the temple of, uh, uh, this is a hard word, Asclepius. How many of you guys ever seen, um, like on a medical building, you see a staff and there's snakes wrapped around it? Okay, that's coming from Greek Hellenistic influence. They believe that Asclepius was the, the god of healing for them. Incidentally, that's a mockery of Numbers 21. You guys remember when the people of God are getting bit by the serpents and Moses holds up a staff with a snake on it? When they look, they're healed. That's a pretty curious story. Like, if you read that story without any biblical context, you'd be like, what in the world? Like, that seems mysticism, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem weird? Well, the world has adopted that very thing. But the only way we understand that is if we understand something Jesus said. Now, you guys remember when Jesus is preaching, he has this really cool encounter in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. By the way, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a ruling Jew, a teacher of the Jews. So this is a guy who understands the law, understands the Old Testament, and he comes to Jesus at night. You ever notice that sometimes people do curious things at night? He comes to Jesus at night. He's like, hey, Jesus, 
like, we know you're a teacher from God because no one could do this stuff unless they were from God. And Jesus, Jesus just cuts to the chase. Hey, you got to be born again. It's like, what do you mean? I'm supposed to go to my mama's womb and come? That's weird, Jesus. That's weird. No, no, no. Aren't you Israel's teacher? Don't you understand these things? You've got to be born naturally, and you've got to be born spiritually. That which is spirit is spirit. That which is flesh is flesh. You must be born again. Incidentally, we come up to John 3.16, the most famous Bible verse in the world, for God so that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him not perish, but have everlasting life. But just prior to that, watch this, verse 14. Jesus, he's explaining to Nicodemus, he says, listen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now that curiousness of what we saw in Numbers 21 is a representation of the crucifix, the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's a, it's a type in the Old Testament of something in the New Testament. Now, continuing on with Pergamus, um, Constantine was the Roman emperor, and he made Christianity the, natural, the national religion of Rome, okay? He has a vision of a fiery cross, and he says, God told me in this sign, go and conquer. I don't think that's a very good model to promote Christianity, incidentally. I'm not sure 100% that he heard from God or that God told him to do it the way that he did it, but he did conquer the then-known world. Um, Christianity was then politically uh, forced onto the people. In other words, if you were going to be a Roman citizen, you had to be a Christian. The problem with this is that if you force people to be Christians and then you stick them in churches, you end up with ungodly leaders. This is this season in church history. And if you study it, you see that super clearly. So the Roman Catholic Church ultimately becomes the product of this season. That will be the Church of Thyatira next week. You're going to see some of the Roman Catholic stuff in there. Incidentally, I am not anti-Catholic, so if you're here and you are Catholic or you're former Catholic or your grandmother's Catholic, Catholics love Jesus too, but I'm going to share with you right now there's some weird stuff that comes out of it, and I'll share with you that next, next week as well. And I'm just going to say this. What does the Bible say about it? This is my opinion. Does the Bible promote some of the doctrines that Catholics adhere to? I'm going to show you that it doesn't. So some of the negative stuff, as an example, from Catholicism. How many of you guys have ever heard of purgatory? So Catholics believe this, that you can die, and if you didn't believe in Jesus, you can go to a holding place called purgatory, and then you and I can sit down here and pray that God would still forgive them in purgatory so that they can make it into heaven. But the scriptures say it's appointed to, one, to man once to die, then the judgment. So there is no holding place but that came out of this kind of national Christian religion. What about the worship of saints? The worship of saints also came out of this period of national religion. What about the worship of angels, the worship of Mary? How about the priests wearing robes and things to separate themselves from the laity, which in a second we're going to see that Nicolaitans was one of the issues that that church faced, that they lorded over the laity, the people. They controlled them. So all of these things came out of this, this picture. Now, not all of it was negative. Say, it's not, not all negative, Pastor. Have you guys ever heard of the, the Council of Nicaea? The Council of Trent? The, the, oh, I'm spacing the word Tyre. There's another council in Tyre. And I, the Synod of Tyler, Tyre, I'll share with you some of those next week because I'll, I'll start to build in some of the church history, which incidentally were super significant to you and I as Christians. Now, how many of you guys know that Jesus came in the flesh? That was decided at the Council of Nicaea. So it took them like almost 400 years to go, was he a ghost or did he really show up? Was he really God? 
What was, did the, did the father become the son, then the son become the spirit, or is there actually a trinity all decided in this period? So again, not all of it is negative. Some of it is very, very, very good promotion of healthy Christian theology and doctrine. And I'll get into some of that in coming weeks as well, because I want some of you to understand. I know some of this is technical for y'all. For you technical people, like I'm looking at Steve, Steve's like, I love this stuff. Marty's like, keep going past some of you, like, where's the coffee? <laughs> Help me. I'm just trying to help you guys grow a little bit, lay out some, some breath. So there were some positive stuff with the councils. Okay, now let's walk through this. Let's talk about the description of Christ. It says that he had a sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. So anytime you see a two-edged sword, that is a reference to the Word of God. It always references the Word of God. Let me show you. From Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, For the Word of God is living and active, watch, sharper, than any two-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It says that it's sharp, literally precise. You ever notice that when you read the Bible and you're challenging your own position, your soul, your emotions, how many of you guys ever have your emotions get wacky? Come on. And you start doing this with every, tell me if you've ever done this. Oh, woe is me. They all hate me. They're all talking about me. Man, I can't believe it. The reason they did this, oh, they did that because of this. They were trying to get me back. I can't believe it. They're talking, man. I bet you when I'm not there, and I better tell everybody else because, you know, those people gossip, so i got to talk to them about them gossiping about me. So I'm going to gossip about them to tell them about gossiping about me so that we'll all understand that gossip's an issue. You know the Word of God separates that stuff? You ever sat with God and said, you know, is, is my thought about Fred or George or Henry or whoever you got on that? Is the way that I think about this accurate? And you hear the Spirit of God go, if you forgive, I'll set you free. What do you mean if I forgive? See to it that no root of bitterness spring up among you and by it defiles many. Amen. You get defiled and then you start talking to other people. They get defiled. Before you know it, you've got a church full of gossip and slander and everybody's whispering in the corners about each other. By the way, you want to kill the move of God in a hurry? Start gossiping. It's so, so dangerous. See, the Word of God separates. It's, sharp, it's precise. It'll go exactly where it needs to be. Let's continue on. And so it says that sharper than any two-edged sword, it'll divide. It's precise. It's, it's going to pierce through. It'll penetrate through the surface-level stuff, and it'll divide, partition. It will separate things that are out of order. It says it'll separate soul and spirit. I think I just defined that for you. It'll show you where your motives are and where God's motives are and what is healthy and right. Like this, this idea clarifies what's from God, listen, and what's from you. Joints and marrow, it separates our physical bodies. Listen, the inference here is that which hinders the power of God. You ever thought this? It sure would be nice if God healed me. Well, God, watch. God, if it's your will, would you heal me? You know, and by the way, I can show you evidence scripturally where God says it was his will that somebody was born blind or deaf or something. I can show you that. But if God is good, I'm not of the opinion that I should pray. I think, let me say this differently. I think you should always pray for God's will. I think that's our scapegoat for lack of faith. That's what I'm saying. I think sometimes we go, oh, God, I want you to heal grace. So if it's your will, because I don't really believe you can do it. I think that's chicken. I think it's much more bold to listen. God, what are you saying? 
Because I've prayed for people before, and I've had God, like I actually had, I'll tell you guys, pretty supernatural story. So pay attention. I think this is cool. Maybe it's a testimony that builds your faith. I was praying for somebody one time. I don't ever give dates, by the way. I don't ever say like, by 2023 in December, you're going to have, I don't do that. You know, because I, I just know in part, I prophesy in part. Sometimes I get pictures and things or bits and pieces about people's lives, but I don't ever think I got the whole picture. So I was praying for somebody one time and they needed healing. Lots of stuff going on. They were addicted to opiates because the doctors were giving them medicine. They couldn't get off the medicine, but it was hindering their, their healing. Am I talking? Anybody else ever experienced anybody like this? Like opiates are very dangerous, by the way, if you don't know that. If you're taking them, you should try to get off of them. You know, if you need them for pain, I get it, but try to get off them. Anyways, I, I'm praying for this person. I, I go, man, I said, I'm going to take a risk. I said, Lord is telling me this. By Friday, you'll be free. And it's like a Tuesday or something like that, like just a few days. Or, by the way, if you know anything about opiates, you can't be free in four days. If you're addicted to them, you can't get off them. It's not like that. I just said, I, I'm just telling you what the Lord says, and, and I'm going to pray to that end. And when I saw him the following Sunday, he walked into church and he hugged me and he said, I haven't had any meds since you prayed for me. And I feel normal. Like I'm not, no withdrawals, no nothing. My pain level, like it's shifted everything. There's times where the word of God will cut through the middle of all the crazy. Like it, it, it really, it challenges our hindering of God's possibility. He sent his word to heal our diseases. Psalm 107.20, I'm getting ahead of myself. It, it literally says this. He sent his word and he healed them and he delivered them from their destructions. So God is a healer. In, in the story in Matthew 8.8, um, the centurion the centurion says this to Jesus, but the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. See, what it'll do is that the word of God, it'll separate your thoughts. Literally in the Greek, it's the enthumos. It's when you are inwardly impassioned or heated up. Any of you guys have a problem with overreacting, short, short temper? That's not me, by the way. <laughs> Jesus ain't done with me yet, okay? I'm better than I used to be, but he ain't done. I, it's one of those thorns in the flesh for me, if I'm honest, that, it, that I always have to go back to God and then apologize because I just sometimes react. I'm learning. I'm learning to be more tempered. But it says this, that, that it will separate, the Word of God will separate your passions and motivations from God's. It, it'll separate your inward meditations and thinkings, your consideration. See, the Word of God has the ability to set us free because it's alive. It's alive. It really does. If you will get it into you, it'll change you. It changes how we see things. See, the Word of God, it's like this. It's like a mirror. You ever read the Word of God and you hold it up and you're like, uh-oh. You look like one of those funny house mirrors where you're all distorted because you're looking at a picture of God, and when you look in the mirror, you don't look like that picture. That's what the Word of God does. It holds up a picture of who Christ is and what He calls us to be. Listen, don't get uptight about the Word. When it challenges or chastens you, agree with it. Surrender to it. Invite the Holy Spirit to transform and change you because that's really powerful. So Jesus is the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. He's telling this church, look inward, assess yourselves to God's standards, not to each other saying you should think the way God thinks. Now, now the commendation, this is back into Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. He says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Again, that's scary language in a church. Would you agree? And that you hold fast to my name. That's good. 
and you didn't deny the faith, even when Antipas, or Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Again, Satan's in the midst of this church somewhere. Now, we don't know who Antipas is. Nobody understands it. Just to name what we do know about him is those, those statements that are made about him following. So the first thing is this. They held fast. Another, let's think like this. They stayed powerful. How do you stay powerful? Come on, church, help me out. How do you stay powerful? Good, good what about personally? How do you personally stay powerful? When it's just you and Jesus, how do you stay powerful? You, you read his word, you pray. Listen, listen, you lean into him. It's his strength that makes you strong. That's what makes you, you powerful. So you lean, he says, listen, you hold fast to my name. Listen, anytime you see the name of God, it's always talking about leaning into the character of God. So he's saying to this church, way to go. When things got hard, even when you watch Antipas die, you leaned into my strength. And even though Satan was all around you, you leaned into my strength. He's saying that to us today too. When things are hard, when Satan's attacking you, lean in to my strength. This makes sense? He's asking us to go his direction. He says, man, we don't know who Antipas was, but we do know this. He was my witness, which is a martyr testimony. So he died for faith. He's my faithful one. To me, he put ultimate trust in Jesus, and he was killed, literally murdered for believing this. So listen, listen, church, say this with me. No church thinks that they're inviting Satan. No church thinks that. No church thinks that, hey, we're doing this thing, and we're just saying, come in and mess with us. No church thinks that. I, I think it's funny. As you study these churches, every single one of these churches was surprised when God said, way to go, and they were equally surprised when he said, you're blowing it. See, listen, I'm going to suggest this to you. None of us is self-aware enough to understand fully what we think is in line with God and not in line. Listen, it's why we have to stay surrendered. I've been saying this to you every week. Abide, abide, and abide. Stay in relationship with God. Because if you're in relationship, he can say to you, son, I don't like the way you're doing that. Daughter, move this direction. I, I want you to forgive him. Hey, why don't you go help that homeless person? You can hear him. But when you're not in tune, you'll think that you're okay, when in fact, you may not be okay. So now what about all this talk about Satan? Now, a lot of talk about Satan in the church. You guys agree? You guys awake? You guys got, kind of got this thing going on. Unfold your hands. Say, pastor's for me, not against me. I'm teasing you. Totally teasing. Some of you listen that way. You're like, I'm a student. I'm just paying attention. Now, what's all this talk about Satan in the church? So if there's a lot of talk about Satan in the church, I just want to give you a little picture. I know we talked about this a few weeks ago. Who is Satan? So we know this. Satan's a fallen angel, okay? Fallen angel. We know this. His name was Lucifer. We know this. Some scholars believe that he was the third archangel of, of the Trinity. So Michael being the father, Gabriel being the son, and Lucifer being the spirit. We know that he was the worship leader of heaven, and we know that from both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. You can go study those. I've taught on those before. We know that when he fell, a third of the angels fell with him. He does not possess the attributes of God. Somebody say amen. He's not eternal. He's not everywhere all the time, omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. And he's not omniscient. He does not know everything. Somebody go, man, it seems like he's reading my mail. No, he's just watching your life. Like if you're really good at tempting somebody, are you going to do things that wouldn't tempt them? Like his whole, his whole job is to deceive you. 
So, like, you got to think like this. He is as good as it gets at deceiving. And I've shared this with you lots of times. Deception, by definition, means you don't recognize it. You're not deceived if you recognize it. Deception is unknowable. It's unrecognizable until God points it out to you. That's his job. His job is to get you off track. But listen, he's not God. So I had a great question. I love questions. By the way, this is a great question. Is there evil in heaven? Oh, man, this is a good one. You know, theologians are all over the map about this. This one's fun. So is there evil in heaven? What do you guys think? Well, how the heck is Satan accusing Job before the throne of God then? He's evil. He's in heaven. He traveled. Yeah, I love this. I love that. You guys are all, oh, wait a minute. You're challenging. Now, now if, if there isn't evil in the heavenlies, why is it that Michael and Gabriel had to battle against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece in the unseen realm? Daniel chapter 9, I think it is. Why did that have to occur? This actually came out of a question in my daughter's philosophy of religion class. They asked that question in the class, and she came home, and she's like, I couldn't answer it, Dad. And I go, well, I'm going to have a hard time answering this one, too. So let me give you just a few thoughts about this. Satan's evil. We know he's before the throne of God. That's Job chapter 1. Um, wars waged in the heavenlies, like I said, Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece. We know he's the accuser, the liar, a murderer, the adversary, that he's ever before the throne of God accusing the brethren day and night. Okay, so this is what I came to her and I said, listen, Satan is not the equal opposite to God. Okay, somebody say amen. He's like, some people have this thought, God is going to rule heaven and Satan is going to rule hell. Uh Uh-uh. God is going to rule heaven, Satan is going to get judged in hell. He's not the equal to God and many people think that. I think Satan is still deluded enough to think that he's going to win the battle but he's not the equal to God. And you need to make sure you understand that. He's, he's not in heaven battling God. He, he's already been defeated. That happened when Jesus went to the cross. Amen. He says he took captivity captive, gave gifts to men. He took authority over the works of darkness at that point. Listen, he is in heaven. The devil is in heaven accusing you and I, but listen, only with God's permission and only for God's purposes does he have any access to your life. Okay, that's super important for us to understand as believers because we always, like, let me say it like this. We give the devil too much credit. We do. So something happens and we're like, oh, man, the devil's up in my world. And no, you live in a fallen world, so technically it's relative to the devil. Me, he ain't doing anything. Or maybe you sinned really bad and you're just reaping the consequences of it. Maybe God is protecting us and we don't, go, we don't know why for sure, but we don't go to Guatemala. But it sure does seem like there's hindrance there. So how do I measure you stay in tune with God? Don't give the devil credit that isn't his. Like I always tell people this, look inwardly before you look outwardly. Because oftentimes you'll find that it's your own behavior creating the trouble. Satan's just capitalizing on your stupidity. Hello? (laughs) No, I didn't just call you stupid, okay? You're so mean, pastor. No, I'm not mean. So listen, Satan is real. And he is powerful. In Jude, it says that, they did, that, the, the, that Michael the archangel didn't bring a railing accusation against him. So if an archangel didn't accuse Lucifer, we shouldn't either. Don't be flippant with the devil. He's not weak sauce. He'll whoop up on you. But you should always stand in your authority in Christ. Amen? Okay, so 
Again, understanding who he is, because there's a lot of discussion about Satan being in the mix of the church, and I think it's smart for us to be aware of what that is. So what about the rebuke? Okay, so we've had the commendation, you hold fast to my name, you, you stand firm, you lean toward me like we talked about, that Jesus' name is the sharp two-edged sword. Now we get the rebuke. But I have a few things against you because you have there, some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who, keep, who kept the teaching of Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, what the heck is that? Like, you've got to know a little bit about Balak and Balaam. These are Old Testament guys. So quick, I'm trying to do this fast without doing a disservice to it. So they, they held to these teachings and they sacrificed to idols and they were sexually immoral. We know that those things. So this is the church that embraces the ways of the world. You can do things that are ungodly and still be okay. So what did Balaam teach? We know this about Balaam. He was a diviner. That's in Joshua chapter 13. He was Mesopotamian, most likely, definitely a Gentile, Deuteronomy 23. Um, Balak is the king of Moab. Incidentally, let me park on Moab for a second. How many of you guys know what the inception of Moab was? Anybody ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody ever heard of Lot? Ever, anybody ever heard of Lot's daughters who seduce him and they have an incestual relationship? You know who's born? Moab. So it traces all the way back to sexual perversion. So that's what you're seeing. Pergamus is operating in sexual perversion, and it taps all the way back to Lot having an ancestral relationship with his daughter and having a son named Moab, which literally means of the father. So in other words, he's even being called out in his name that you're like grandpa and dad are the same person. So that, that's what the incest does in this one. So he, we know that Balak is the king of Moab. He hired Balaam to curse the people of God. And Balaam rebuked, is rebuked by a donkey. This is Numbers chapter 22. So he's trying to go through, and the angel of the Lord is going to strike him. And, and he keeps whacking the donkey like, why won't you go forward? But the donkey can see the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord is sitting there with a the sword, and, and he's disobeying God. And as he's trying to go, the angel is going to chop his head off. And the donkey keeps stalking. And he beats him, and he beats him again. He beats him a third time. And the donkey sits down. And then the, he starts having a conversation with the donkey. Hello, if you start to talk to your animals and they talk back, I'm just saying, if they talk back, you should really pay attention. The donkey goes, man, I've been with you my whole life. Haven't I been a faithful donkey? And then God opens his eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord about to chop his head off because he's disobeying God because he's, he's going to go do the thing where he speaks the curse. And if you want to go read that, Numbers 23 and 24. And then Balaam he ultimately refuses to speak evil against God. God tells him he's a prophet. We don't know for sure that he's a prophet of God, but God is talking to him, so possibly. But he, Balak is saying, curse the people of Israel so that I can win the battle against them. Every time he opens his mouth, he blesses them. And so Balak's like, I paid you money, dude, come on. And he goes, I can't do it. I can't. God won't permit me to speak evil. Watch, watch, this is really dangerous. Balaam goes, but if you want to get the Israelites, Balak, all you got to do is you got to take your women and present them to the men of Israel and capture them through sex. This church is capturing people through sex. The, the, the objectionable marriage. That's how you, So anything you look at with this, ch this, this church, it's pointing back to sexual perversion. It's pointing back to sexually being misaligned with the purposes of of God 
You know, the Israelites, they were commanded not to marry with the Moabites, yet they do it, and it gets them into trouble. In the New Testament, we see the doctrine of Balaam, Revelation 2, we're in it. 2 Peter 2.15 and Jude verse 11. So what are the errors? This is marriage to the world is one of the errors. Spiritual compromise and sexual perversion, that's another error. And giving, uh, giving up your spiritual inheritance, listen, for money. If Balaam was a prophet of God, he sold the gift. He sold the gift to earn money with it. Listen, when the world is comfortable with your lifestyle, there's no your lifestyle doesn't convict them, and people can't tell the difference between you and them, you're in danger. When your lifestyle doesn't look different than the world's, you're in danger. I love you all. I see some of your Facebook posts, and sometimes I wonder. I'm just saying. When the world is comfortable with your lifestyle, when you compromise sin, particularly sexual sin, you do it for money, you're in danger. When you make money with the gift that God has given you, and I'm not talking about your job, I'm talking about the spiritual gift. You use your spiritual gift to manipulate people for money. You use it for self-gain. You use it to build your kingdom, not God's kingdom. Listen, you're in danger. Why is this such a big deal to God? Why is all this such a big deal to God? Why is marriage, sexual, sexuality, sexual purity such a big deal to God? Listen, the church, you and I, other churches in the region, other churches throughout history, past and future, listen, you are the bride of Christ. Amen. The whole picture of our relationship to Christ's redemptive work is that he's the bridegroom and we're the bride. So when you wonder why all this discussion about marriage because it's so easily defiled. Like, think like this. If any of you were going to get married, and on your wedding day you found out that your, your, your guy or your girl cheated on you the day or the night before, how would you feel about that? I got a question for you. Do you think that Jesus is any less heartbroken when we pervert our relationship to him? Listen, this is heavy-duty language. You guys need to understand that. This is a calling to correction. And listen, you need to understand that all of the churches, when he calls them to correction, he calls them and says, but if you don't do this, I'm going to get you. But if you repent, I'll restore you. Amen. Over and over, this happens with all seven churches. If you do what I'm telling you to do, you will do okay. See, listen, when we violate this, Jesus is equally heartbroken when we don't stay pure for him. Listen, I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about life. I'm not talking about basic struggles. I'm not talking about, hey, I had a bad day. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you start to create a lifestyle that takes you away from Jesus being first in your life. And you start to compromise. Other people are doing it. I don't get why it's such a big deal. You know, you know why sexuality is so rampant in our culture? Because if you try to search something godly regarding aberrant sexuality, you've got to go three or four pages deep to even get information. And I love this generation. Say, Pastor loves the young generation. I do. You guys have technology at your fingertips, and most of it, probably 95% of it, is inaccurate. So you're buying hook, line, and sinker, all these TikTok things and stuff coming your way, Instagram, and you're thinking, man, this is the truth. It is not accurate. And, and listen, I'm not trying to pick on you guys. You don't have enough discipline to go research if it is. See, if you go check it out, you'll find out, you got to do a little work 
or you got to go talk to somebody who actually knows scripture and knows church history. I'm not the only one here who knows that. Pastor Russ has got a master's degree. Henry's got a master's degree. Santosh is brilliant in the scripture. A lot of us know. I point out more names. A lot of us know. Jason knows the scriptures. Steve Busby knows the scriptures. Bill White knows the scriptures. I can go around this room. Lots of disciple people in the room. If you go ask questions, you'll get answers. They'll help you to discern what's accurate, what's inaccurate. I'm encouraging you, don't just pass that stuff by. Because, listen, the devil is trying to get your heart. you got to get that. And if he can get you to believe the lies and the deception, that's, man, that's 90% of the battle. Because the way you think is the way you'll go. We know that to be true. If you think wrong, you'll do wrong. Amen? Okay. I think I think, whew, hit that one hard for you. Okay. He also mentions the heresy of the Nicolaitans. We've already covered this. Not going to spend a lot of time in this. Verse 15, you also have some who is in the same hold, the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's lording over the laity. In other words, when there's a heavy hand over the people of the church. And then he closes with the promise, verse 17. And he says, he who has an ear, how many of you guys have ears? Yeah. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him who Nikes, Nikeo, to him I'll give, watch, some of the hidden manna. Now, now, hidden manna, what is it? Literally means, what is it? The name manna means, what is it? Okay, my suggestion to you of what it is, it's God's presence through God's provision. I'm here with you, and here's how I'm going to sustain you. So the hidden manna is God sustaining them. It's like, and then this, this particular part of all of, the, actually, I might even say, go so far as to say, of the scriptures, this is my particular favorite promise in all the scriptures. He says, I'm going to give you a white stone. A white, why a white stone? Like, you need to think typologically. Why white? What does white speak of? Clean, purity. Why a stone? You ever thought about it? Jesus is the chief cornerstone. When you're thinking foundationally, if you have a bad foundation, you don't have anything stable. So this is a pure, this is purity established, or, or stability established through purity. That's what you, you're going to be stable because you're walking in purity. And then he says this, and I'm going to give you a new name. Oh, I love this. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever really thought about it. How intimate is Jesus with you? He said, I'm going to give you a new name. Listen, in that new name, only you're going to know. So in other words, when Jesus gives me this name, Steve's not going to call me that name. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. What, what's that name? I don't know. Is it, is it Victor? Is it, is it Champion? Is it Merciful? Is it Gracious? Is it Tre I don't know. What is, I mean, does God have language that we don't have words for? I think, I think yes. I think yes. I mean, could it be something we've never even considered or thought? He's going to have a name that's yours. Now, you know why I love that stuff? Because I'm the baby of 12 kids, and I have lots of nicknames. And, and none of them are very endearing, if I'm honest. Like, I don't, I don't feel particularly good about some of the names my family calls me. So I'm like, well, I don't like those. But I'm thinking, when I get face-to-face -face with Jesus, he's going to say something about me that is meaningful to me, and only I'll know it, and him. See, I, like, for me, may, I don't know why. Maybe it's just it scratches my itch. Maybe it doesn't scratch yours. But for me, that is like as good a promise as you could ever give me. You're going to make me who you desire me to become, and only you and I are going to know what that, that, what, only me and you. 
I mean, I just think that's so, like, this is what it does in me. God is so intimate with how he made me. I'm so fearfully and wonderfully made that only he has the word that speaks wholeness and life to me that only I would understand. Like, if, if he said my word to you, you'd be like, well, who cares? But if he says your word to you, you're like, oh, wow. Like, this is what it translates to me. He sees me. He sees me intimately, personally, powerfully. And I think that's so amazing. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, everything has become new. So listen, we're going to finish there this morning. And I just want to pray for you this morning. Just as we close, we, we had a nice time of ministry and worship. Incidentally, if any of you do need prayer, the ministry team is always available post-service. They'll come and pray with you. You just need to come on up and say, hey, I need prayer in this area of my life. But listen, as you go out today, here's the challenge. The, the corrective side of the challenge is this. Are you married to the world? Is your lifestyle worldly? Listen, I don't know your private stuff. I don't know. Like, I see what I see. Guys show up to church. Most of you dress pretty nicely. Few of you just rolled out of bed. I'm just saying. But no, but most of you look pretty good. But it's Sunday. On a Sunday, we put on our Sunday best. But what's it like when you're alone with God? What's it like when no one's watching? My favorite definition of integrity ever is it's what you do when no one is watching. But listen, listen. God's always watching. He's always watching. How do you get away from the, the one whose eyes burn like fire? How do you get away from that? He's always watching. So what about your life? Maybe you need to lay at the throne of God and say, this is out of line with, with you and, and I need your help. And then what about where you're at is God celebrating? Way to go. You're doing well. Keep it up. Don't roll over. Stay faithful. Keep leaning into me. Listen, I, I want to tell you guys, way to go. Because I know that a study like this, one, it's technical, and I'm not nice to you guys right now. I'm kind of beating up on you a little bit. And I'm watching you guys kind of go, okay, God, where am I at right now? And how do I keep growing? I want to encourage you, keep growing. Don't shrink back from what God is up to. And when we learn the scriptures, they're powerful. They're able to make us wise for all godliness in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you all. Um, Father, I want to say thank you for this morning. Thank you that this section of the book of Revelation is so instructional to us as a church. God, we've covered Ephesus who left their first love. And we say, God, turn our hearts back toward you. If that's any of us in the room, online, make us prioritize our love for you. Help, help realign us. Realign us. God, when we got to Smyrna, there was no correction, but there was this sense of intense persecution. And you said, stay strong. And with Pergamos, you said, don't defile yourself in, with the worldly ways. Don't look like the world. So with those things, God, we just lay down our hearts and say, transform us. God, we pray the promises over us that you would give us a new name, a white stone, hidden manna. God, that we would be stable, fresh, established in you. God, let us continue to press in, walk deeply. Let us continue to discern this season. Let us continue to be the a house of God that worships you in spirit and truth. God, we want to take this moment to just say, protect Israel, cover over them. Protect the families on both sides. I'm not just, like I know Hamas is, is evil in intent, but there's still civilians getting hurt and wounded and killed. And God, we just pray that you would supernaturally bring an end to this, even though 
we know that some of it is, is biblical in a sense. But God, you never promote death, and you're never happy about death, and you're never happy about war. God, we pray that you protect Israel and that you would just bring a ceasefire to the war that's out there. God, as we go today, cover each one of us. Let us be people who just walk humbly, gracefully with our God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Um, If you do need prayer, a couple of the prayer folks will make themselves available. Otherwise, have a great Sunday and enjoy your lunch or whatever you do from here. God bless you.